The U.S. strikes back at Iranian proxy forces in Iraq and Syria after their deadly attack on U.S. troops in Jordan. How effective was the U.S. response? A Brookings Institution researcher gives us his view. I can't score the results with an A+, but there may still be a value that we don't see quite as easily. A UN human rights official makes a controversial visit to Iran. We ask a US rights group why it fears her visit will have unintended consequences. And Iran releases two female journalists on bail after jailing them for 16 months for covering the 2022 death of Masa Amini. A media rights group tells us why it remains concerned about their fate. Clearly, these women are not out of harm's way. They are still in legal peril. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. The U.S. Defense Department said Tuesday it is continuing to assess the impact of U.S. strikes on Iranian and Iranian proxy targets in Iraq and Syria last Friday, which represented the heaviest U.S. bombardments since conflicts began escalating in the region four months ago. The U.S. operation was the first salvo of a promised series of strikes in retaliation for an Iranian proxy drone attack that killed three American soldiers at a base in Jordan on January 28th. That was the first deadly strike on U.S. forces in the four months of intensified regional conflicts. Deputy Pentagon Press Secretary Sabrina Singh told reporters at a briefing that she was not yet able to provide information about casualties from the U.S. strikes in Iraq and Syria. There have been unverified reports from the two countries of fatalities among Iranian proxy forces and civilians. VOA's Carla Bab was at the briefing. I asked her how unusual it is to have no details of casualties from U.S. officials four days after such an operation. It's hard to say whether this is usual or unusual because, frankly, this sort of assessment depends on where the strikes occurred. So, for example, if it's in the middle of Islamic State territory back in 2016, then you're probably not going to get a very good assessment for several days, if at all, because you're limited on your surveillance capabilities, you're limited on your human intelligence capabilities to assess what damage was done during a strike. But this one, for example, the strikes in Iraq, that should not be something that is taking a very long time to assess. The concern from someone on the outside looking in is that what the U.S. military is classifying as an Iranian-backed proxy group, Iraq may be classifying as a PMF associated with their defense forces. So I can only suspect that both militaries are now trying to sort that out, find out who was targeted, find out how they are related. That may be the cause for the differences between the U.S. saying we didn't think there were any civilians killed and the Iraqis saying we do believe there were civilians killed. So we're just going to let this take its time. I know the Pentagon wants to get this right more than anything. That's what they're trying to do. And I think that's what the delay is, because let's not forget the Iraqis are very strong partners of the United States and U.S. forces are in Iraq because Iraq has invited them there. So this is not something where the United States is going to bully its way in to say, oh, no, 
this is not the case. It's our way or the highway. This is something where I'm sure that they're trying to work together to find out exactly what happened. How has the Pentagon responded to what looks like a lot of pressure from the Iraqi side for the U.S. to sort of back off or scale back its responses to strikes from these Iranian proxies? Well, there's been no indication that they plan on scaling back. In fact, at every briefing that I've been to over the last couple of days since these strikes, they have made it very clear that the response is incomplete. There are going to be additional strikes. We don't know where, we don't know when, but there will be additional strikes because let's not forget, three service members were killed. So these attacks have been taken seriously for several months now. But then things escalated because Americans are now dead. And somebody has to be held responsible for these American deaths. And this building, I know, takes that very seriously. And so a a one-off is just not going to cut it. They want to make sure that the Iranian-backed proxies feel pain. They want to make sure that the Iranian-backed proxies feel that they can no longer take a chance on lobbing a missile or a rocket at U.S. forces anymore. And we're just going to have to wait and see if the final response will be enough to deter Iranian proxies because all the analysts that I've been speaking to have reminded me that at this point, deterrence is not in the Middle East. Clearly, none of the Iranian-backed proxies feel deterred and feel threatened enough to stop their attacks. We have heard signs from Kataib Hezbollah saying that they were going to stop attacks, but the Houthis have been almost defiant in Yemen when it comes to firing off things into the Red Sea. And you still saw attacks in Syria over the weekend. Two attacks, one of them deadly, didn't kill any Americans, but killed six of the U.S. partner forces, the Syrian Democratic Forces. So there is still a lot of tension going on in the region. Well, VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb reporting from the Pentagon. Thanks so much for updating us on Flashpoint Iran. You're welcome. I also discussed the latest U.S. strikes against Iran's Mideast proxies with the Brookings Institution's Michael O'Hanlon. This was his verdict. Well, I think you have to say two things. One is that in terms of achieving any particular change in the dynamics, they are not a success because we haven't seen any change in the dynamics in the frequency of firing of missiles at ships or up further north and the frequency of firing at American military personnel on bases in the broader Levant region. But if you think about it in more indirect terms, we have shown a willingness to get involved militarily. That sends a message that if things got even worse, we would presumably contemplate more significant action. So we're reaffirming our willingness to use military force. There can't really be any fair-minded perception that the United States is sort of pulling out of the region or disengaging, or that President Biden has somehow become unwilling to risk a military confrontation because he's running for re-election. So in that sense, it's hard to say that there's outright failure when we have shown a certain willingness to defend our interests. And We may not be able to achieve the immediate tactical goal of stopping the current kind of attacks, but we may be sending a message that discourages escalation, and that by itself may be a valuable achievement. So I'm not loving what's been happening in the sense that I can't score the results with an A+, 
but there may still be a value that we don't see quite as easily. What kind of strategy do you think we're likely to see from Iran and its proxies going forward? I think we'll see a continuation of the current situation because Iran and its proxies probably feel on balance that the current dynamics are advantageous for them and they can essentially get away with this level of violence, obviously with certain reprisal attacks by the United States and a certain amount of loss of life to their own people as well as perhaps to others. But you know, the leadership of these movements has always been willing to risk other people's lives and even their own people's lives. So I don't think that will be seen as a major impediment. And I think on balance, they view the broader struggle in Gaza and elsewhere as turning the broader international currents of public opinion against Israel and the United States and its allies. They see these dynamics as weakening the US position in Iraq, where we've seen again now discussion about whether American forces should be asked to leave. Uh, we've seen international shipping be rerouted. And while that may be a tolerable risk to the world economy, it certainly is putting the Houthi cause all over the headlines around the world. And of course, Iran itself, sort of its stock and trade is causing mischief, causing mayhem, and trying to gradually erode the strategic and moral standing of the United States and its allies in the region and in the world. So for Iran, that's the game it likes to play. Uh, I think it's a foolish game because I think all it's done is bring misery to a lot of people, including a lot of Iranians, and held that country back from becoming a major technological and economic power. So by my calculus, it doesn't look very impressive. But by their calculus, I think they're probably more or less happy with how things are going. I don't expect major escalation. I think they'll try to play out what's happening now and see where it takes them. Well, you did talk about a kind of unity of purpose among the various Iranian proxies who are fighting the U.S. and Israel. But on the U.S. side, the emphasis is on how to keep these various conflicts separate. The U.S. conflict with the Houthis and the strikes on Iranian proxies in Iraq and Syria and the Israeli conflict with Hamas and Hezbollah. What do you think of the prospects that the U.S. can keep all these things separate? I don't know. It's not entirely within our control, of course. It's ultimately a decision for groups like Hezbollah and Iran's government. And we've certainly seen groups like the Houthi, as well as the Iraqi Islamist resistance, try to expand, you know, do their own part in expanding the conflict. So it's not isolated and contained. And there are multiple things happening in the broader region. And those have stepped up in intensity in recent weeks and months. So there are groups out there a number of them inspired by and funded by Iran, whether or not they're directed by Tehran is a separate question, that are actively trying to broaden this conflict and maybe even connect the different pieces. But of course, for Israel and the United States, and maybe for the Iranian government, any further movement down that path is seen as undesirable, given the risks to Israel and you know the, the broader risks to a United States that's trying to extricate itself partially from the Middle East rather than getting drawn back in. So I don't know how successful we'll be. I think part of why the attacks were limited, you know, against the Houthi and even against the targets in Iraq and Syria over the weekend, part of the reason was to reduce the likelihood of a further escalation and therefore, as you say, sort of a metastasizing or a regionalization of the conflict. 
but I don't really know how to assess the likelihood that the conflict will stay where it is or the set of conflicts will stay where they are. On balance, like I said a minute ago, I don't really see Iran as wanting to risk direct confrontation with the United States. So there is that powerful disincentive against escalation, but it doesn't rule out the possibility Hezbollah could act on its own. It doesn't rule out the possibility that just, you know, sort of the fog of war, if you will, in northern Israel right now would lead to an escalation of the sporadic firing that's already going on. And so it is a dangerous moment, irrespective of the broader long-term strategic goals of the different key players. Well, Michael O'Hanlon, Director of Foreign Policy Research at the Brookings Institution, speaking to us on the line from here in Washington, D.C. Great to have you on Flashpoint Iran. Thanks very much. My pleasure. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. The UN Human Rights Office has broken its silence about a UN rights official's controversial visit to Iran last weekend. In a statement to VOA, the UN office said it is aware of rights groups' concerns that Tehran will exploit the visit of Deputy High Commissioner for Human Rights Nada al-Nashif for propaganda purposes. But it said the trip was an important opportunity for dialogue. U.S. nonprofit group United for Iran was one of 25 rights groups that wrote an open letter to al-Nashif last month, urging her not to go. I spoke by phone to United for Iran's managing director, Kevin Schumacher, and asked what he thought of her going anyway. The problem is the Iranian government has a long history of taking advantage of these dialogues and these routine trips in order to project itself as advocates for human rights, which is far from the truth. The truth is we always wanted to have this monitoring system that have been set up by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights to monitor cases of human rights violations in Iran in a systematic way. That never really happened over the past decade and a half. And so we're afraid that instead of relying on those well-established mechanisms, the Iranian government tries to push for sort of a theatrical conversation that is mainly political and less investigative in its nature. So we want to see, hopefully in the future, a more substantive approach by the High Commissioner for Human Rights Office so that we can see actually those mechanisms that have been put in place to monitor the human rights violations in Iran are working properly and can have access to their sources inside Iran where they can verify those uh, human rights violations. Well, the UN Human Rights Office did tell VOA in a statement that it feels it's important for al-Nashif to follow up directly with Iranian officials by meeting them in person because that promotes, in their view, compliance with Iran's obligations and with recommendations of the human rights mechanisms of the UN. Have you seen any signs that follow-up meetings with Iranian officials directly promotes compliance? Unfortunately, no. We haven't seen any indications that the Iranian government is willing to work with established mechanisms through the Human Rights Council to monitor and document cases of human rights violations in Iran. 
the Human Rights Council has established two systems within the past decade. One is the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Situation in Iran that was established back in March of 2011. And then in the aftermath of the 2022 uprising in Iran, there was a call for the creation of the UN Independent International Fact-Finding Mission on the Islamic Republic of Iran. And neither of these two mechanisms have been allowed access to Iran. The Iranian government refused to cooperate with these two mechanisms. They have never even mentioned the concerns of the international community in the October 2023 Universal Periodic Review that was done by the Islamic Republic of Iran at the Human Rights Council. So there is a pattern of the Iranian government even refusing to recognize the authority of the Human Rights Council and try to approach the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in good faith. That's why we are very worried. Well, the UN Human Rights Office also told VOA that it's aware of uh, the concerns of United for Iran and other groups and that it wants to assure all of you that this visit will not hurt the human rights reporting and advocacy work of the UN. How do you feel about that reassurance? I think it is important to keep in mind that what we said regarding Madam Deputy High Commissioner's trip to Iran is not because of our lack of trust in her or in her office. The problem is we are dealing with a country that is not willing to negotiate in good faith. So they are not going to take any practical measures to address those concerns. We are worried that the Iranian government is not going to be held accountable by the two mechanisms that I just described, because Iran finally is going to say, hey, listen, we had a dialogue with ranking officials from the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, so we're all off the hook. And to us, that does not make sense. Again, if we were talking about other countries where there were dialogues and political visits followed by fact-finding missions, it would have been wonderful. But the problem is Iran is not willing to accept both. And under the circumstances, we prefer to have fact-finding missions rather than political dialogue. Well, Kevin Schumacher, Managing Director of United for Iran, speaking to us on the line from New York. Nice of you to be with us on Flashpoint Iran. Wonderful talking to you. International media rights groups say they will keep up the pressure on Iran to end its persecution of two female journalists it released from prison on bail on January 14th. Nilafar Hamidi and Elahe Mohammadi had been imprisoned since September 2022 for alleged national security offenses related to their coverage of the death of women's rights icon Masa Amini at the time. Elisa Lees Munoz is executive director of the U.S.-based International Women's Media Foundation. I asked her by phone what still concerns her about Hamidi and Mohammadi's situation. Well, we know that they were released on bail. So that means that they are still tied to the judicial system. Well, we'll call it the judicial system, for lack of a better word. They're appealing their case. And so, as I said, you know, we do want to recognize that it's fantastic that they've been released, but their bail has been set, and I believe each of them, at $200,000. So obviously that's a large sum of money. They did spend 17 months in prison, which we know will have had 
a real impact on them physically and psychologically, and we're concerned about that. In addition, they are still facing prison sentences of 13 and 12 years for basically doing their jobs as journalists. And to add insult to injury, they have been charged with additional charges following their release for not wearing a hijab while they were celebrating with their families. I just find that to be incredibly ironic in the worst way. Um, So clearly, these women are not out of harm's way. They are still in legal peril, and we should all continue to watch their case very closely. What do you think are their chances of having a successful appeal against these very long prison sentences? It is really hard to say. I am heartened by the fact that many of the women who were imprisoned, by no means most of them or all of them, but a number of them have been released. And so there is some hope and there does seem to be movement in the right direction. But it's very hard to say because we don't know what the motivating factor is behind these recent actions. Well, this recent action of Iran releasing Hamidi and Mohammadi on bail seemed to come out of the blue. I don't know whether you or other media rights activists had an idea that this was coming, but what role do you think your activism and months of calling for their release from prison had in the fact that they did get out on bail? It's very hard to say. I think this kind of grassroots activism is truly important around the globe. In a country as insular as Iran, it's really difficult to know what, if any, impact it has had on the decision. I do want to add that having heard from other women journalists who have been imprisoned and were aware of these international campaigns on their behalf, that it has a very significant moral impact on the individual to know that they are not alone, to know that the world is watching. It's a huge and beneficial impact on them as individual human beings who have been wronged. So I want to say that about the international activism. From what I have heard and read, this could very well be tied to the upcoming elections. I presume you're referring to elections within Iran. Correct. So again, just going back to the insular nature of the regime, it's quite possible that it has nothing to do with activism and is really a cynical or, uh, yeah, a, a political ploy to try to get some political favor. In light of all that, what is the IWMF going to do going forward to try to make sure that Hamidi and Mohammadi don't end up back in prison anytime soon and that they can actually be completely freed of all charges and get back to their work? I think it's really important for us to continue to work with our partner organizations who follow these cases so closely to offer our moral support, any kind of support that we can to make sure that this case doesn't fall out of the limelight. I think that's the greatest danger that we see in cases 
of journalists who are imprisoned. They get a lot of attention when they are first arrested or when there are developments like this release. But they can spend months and years in jail without their case being raised to the public for more attention, which is potentially when they need it most. So we will continue to make sure that the spotlight shines on this case, regardless of the outcome, and really are hopeful and hoping that all of the charges are dropped so that they can be truly free, as free as one can be in those circumstances, and ideally continue to do their jobs, which is to report the news. We certainly hope that's the case as well. Uh, Elisa Liz Munoz, Executive Director of the International Women's Media Foundation, joining us on the line from here in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for speaking with Flashpoint Iran. Thank you for having me and for continuing to shine the spotlight on these two incredibly brave women journalists. That's it for the show. I'm Michael Lippin. Appreciate you joining us, and I hope you'll do the same next week for another Flashpoint Iran. Flashpoint Iran.